0: Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on Toe. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a cast sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right, hello Toe listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. Approximately 1.5 years ago, I interviewed Janice Fiamengo. This was in preparation for a film that I've written and directed called Better Left Unsaid. It's an upcoming documentary about to be released in one month, the trailer for which is below and the links to see the film are below. It's all about when does the left go too far or extremism on the left, though we do explore extremism on the right. This interview is from when I was less experienced as an interviewer. I was younger. I was a whippersnapper. I was nervously interrupting in an attempt to impress Janice who at the time I wouldn't have called a friend per se, I would have called a gentle mentor, but now I'm proud that I can say that Janice is a friend and hopefully you can see the more tender and kinder side of her, the side that I see through this conversation as well as through the extra footage at the end. If you'd like to see a part two, then please comment below and as well as make sure to leave any questions you have for Janice. All right, I'm here with Janice with the unassailable, impregnable, insurmountable, (laughs) ineluctable, insuperable, Janice (laughs) Villamengo.
1: Do you say that for everyone?
0: No. (laughs) You can see I put put them all online.
1: It's true. I didn't remember that. Okay.
0: (laughs) Tell me about your writing process when it comes to these Studio Brulee videos, or however you pronounce it.
1: Uh, Yeah, Studio Brulee, I think, is, is how Steve pronounces it. My writing process. Well, um... You mean how it all begins? How yeah. I get the idea from so you in have, the first place? Yes.
0: So you come up with some idea, you just notice it online, and you then start to write about it. And then sometimes, it takes
1: sometimes, yeah. You know, people send me things all of the time now. Um, you know, outrageous articles, um, incidents, in, incidents on campus where uh, either a. Uh, uh, speaker has been prevented from giving a talk or has been protested or someone has been fired from his job for what seemed to be kind of dubious reasons uh, or, you know, or a, a particular you know, a course in toxic masculinity that's being taught somewhere, um, all these kinds of things. And so then I think about whether, um, you know, what, what I might be able to say about it. And, and then I, I just, i sometimes i I try to link it to an aspect of feminist critical theory or social justice theory in general can you
0: give us a rundown of what feminist
1: current feminist theory is and critical theory as well (laughs) well um whatever i say uh feminists will say it's much more subtle and sophisticated than that but uh, as far as i can see feminist theory is pretty much the same as it has always been, which is that it, it believes that, um, that we live in a patriarchy, which is a society that is um, male-centered and in which men um, control and oppress women um, through, through discourse, through, uh, through law, uh, through culture, through even jokes and in which women are um, in some way objectified or prevented from being their full selves. I think that it's fair to say. And and, uh, feminism has become more sophisticated over time in that it, it, uh, it claims now that it is intersectional. That's the really popular term, which means that There are all sorts of intersecting identity vectors that impact one's experience as a woman in patriarchy, and also even impact one's experience as a man under patriarchy, depending on race, on sexuality, on a whole variety of other uh, identity categories.
0: You started from a radical feminist to becoming the anti-feminist. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, well, I've told that story now, and i it's hard to remember what's what's true from what I the story that I tell. But I think it it was just a gradual process really, of coming to see that that wasn't so.. Um, I mean, I think I always knew in some way that it wasn't so because feminism posits that the experience of being a woman or a minority in, in North American society is an experience of having your, you know your, your very existence in some way under threat, feeling that your, your uh, central elements of your identity are subjugated and denied and um, scorned. And I never had that experience. I, from day one, I had many male and female mentors who encouraged me to use my gifts in whatever way was best for me. So, so I always knew that my experience was not an experience of being terrorized in any way or of having you know, my <laughs> central self questioned or denied. Um, but I believe that some people must have that experience because feminist theory says it is and there are all sorts of stories of horrific things happening to to women and members of minority groups so so that was what i believed as a grad student really and 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 the thing that i the thing that that was most significant i think about becoming a feminist was that you have this exhilarating sense of Um, you know, rebelling against an oppressive tyranny. And so you feel that everything you do and say from a feminist perspective is really valuable and really important and that you can silence a room by telling your victim story or or by referring to somebody else's victim story. And it's a very, very powerful, it's a, a, a heady, exhilarating kind of rush to accuse others of not being aware of the suffering of people in, in the society and to feel that you're speaking on their behalf. So I, I really like that. I think because, you know, we all want to feel that we're we're good in some way and that what, what we're doing matters. And uh, so I was very much caught up in that. I marched in Take Back the Night Marches and, you know, I, I denounced things that, that that feminists denounce as as damaging to women. Um, But then it it just all began to, you know, it it began to feel like a house of cards because I could, my, my experience had never been that it had always been an experience of being treated with respect, with love, of feeling that my, you know, my male friends, my male mentors, my male teachers obviously cared about me and wanted me to succeed and didn't want me to be hurt in any way. And I wasn't hurt. So, and then I could see that when I became a teacher, I could see that women in my classes were not oppressed. They were full of self-confidence, even self-righteousness. And the men were not privileged, you know, oppressive beings who scorned women. In fact, often they seemed kind of abashed and, and a, a bit ashamed and, and hesitant to speak and quite deferential. To women and in some ways i thought well that's good it shows you know they're very respectful and kind and everything but i also started to see they're being constantly told that they better be quiet and listen and that they're responsible for all these terrible things and that they should be ashamed about the you know the history of north american society and that somehow they were responsible for so-called centuries of oppression and uh you know so the the whole enterprise at that point started to look dubious to me because i you know at 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 least i felt it should be acknowledged that whatever the past had been and even that i began to question but whatever the past had been even if we accepted the feminist story about the past it was no longer that in the in the in the present that was obvious
0: so what what do you think motivates them motivates the feminists to (laughs) view the world in this way even though like you said in classes at least the men are the ones who are more quiet and more Mm -hmm. docile compared to the women
1: yeah well i think it is a it it feels very good it it gives you a sense of purpose gives you a reason to get up in the morning uh it gives you a reason to um it it makes you feel very courageous for speaking out against this so-called oppression um it gives you a a, you know a sense of agency and it, it gives you a sense of power because you know that you can stand up in a room and say, my experience as a woman, or my experience as a woman of color, my experience as a lesbian woman of color, whatever it is, uh, and and a hush will fall on the room. And whatever you say from that point is going to have incredible authority, and no one is going to dare to contradict you or to dismiss what you say after that so you know who wouldn't enjoy that and claim it and i think once you come to believe i mean i'm that suggests that all of this is very insincere which i think some of it is insincere actually but a lot of it is also sincere Um, it's a sincerely held belief that this is the way the world is and once you believe that then you don't want to have someone you know you're not going to allow yourself to be talked out of that because then that would be to in some way surrender the 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 righteousness of the struggle against oppression and it would be to side with the oppressors and of course nobody wants to do that so So you end up having to to keep on believing even when evidence is brought forward that your position is false. Or even when you can see that nobody is treating you badly because you're a woman of color.
0: So what are some of the ways in which women are advantaged?
1: Well, um, (laughs) they're advantaged in all sorts of ways. I mean, specifically in academia. Um, Women have been advantaged for for decades now through affirmative action hiring programs and through all sorts of special scholarships, um, special um, funding mechanisms uh, to advance women's scholarship. Um, you know, in every way, the Academy has, has tried to demonstrate over the last 25 to 30 years that it is an inclusive place for women. And that means that, and I've sat on many hiring committees where it was clear that we wanted to hire women and we wanted to hire, especially women of color, lesbians, et cetera. Um, and so if you fit in one of those identity categories, you had a huge advantage.
0: I know some professors, even in the STEM fields, so people would say, well, the STEM fields are not affected, but I'm talking about professors in the STEM field who said if there's an application for a professor and it's a man, they can reject it. But if it's a woman, they have to have a very, very, very mm-hmm. good reason why
1: they're rejecting it. Oh yes, it. absolutely. Yeah. Um, we had, we operated in the English department and I know that STEM fields now are the ones that are really feeling that pressure. It's called, uh, an equity protocol. And it means that if you have amongst the pool of applicants, a number of women that yes, not to hire the woman, to hire a man over a woman, you would have to, you have to actually write to the dean and explain why you made that decision. And I've even heard of cases where the, the hiring was overturned by higher, higher ups who felt that the rationale given wasn't strong enough so you have some stats?
0: I remember that you were saying that women yeah, are twice as a, likely to be hired in this subfield, in mm, this particular university. Yeah,
1: that's a, a particular, there is a Cornell study, and I can get you the actual study. There was a Cornell study from a couple of years ago, specifically looking at STEM, because um, STEM has been the area where um, feminists have been um, you know, most adamant that that the that equity has failed that women haven't been hired so there was a very extensive you know hundreds of universities surveyed that that found that women were twice twice as likely to be hired as as male applicants even while women continue to and feminists continue to insist that more needs to be done and there are all sorts of now um, women only positions also that are being advertised so it's even more overt. The man doesn't even have a chance at all. In, in Australia, there have been many, both in math and in physics, there have been women only positions advertised over the last few years. Um, uh, in um, Ireland, uh, just this year, it was announced that over the next couple of years, Ireland will hire many, many, a number of dozen of of women-only positions in in an attempt to increase numbers.
0: What are some ways in which women are disadvantaged?
1: (laughs) You're talking to the wrong gal for that answer. Um, You know, what women will, what feminists will say, I don't think very many women who are not uh, feminist will say this about their experience of of, uh, academia, but I think what feminists will say uh, is that they are treated differently as women? That they are um, condescended to? Um, that they, um, you know, that people have different expectations of them as women? Um, you know, that they'll, they'll be assumed to be the secretary rather than the physics professor that they actually are? You know, that kind of thing? And that, and they will claim that this is deeply devaluing you know that it really harms their ability to to work in that environment that it's a kind of microaggression is what they would say and are
0: there studies on that studies to validate what they say so there's some studies that
1: how can it validate it though i mean if 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 somebody thought i was a secretary it would mean nothing to me um I mean, I suppose if from the time I was six years old, I had been given a message, both subtly and overtly, that I could never be a professor at a university, that would obviously have a damaging impact. But if the message I had received from my culture at large was you can be anything you want to be as long as you are you know, work hard at it. And occasionally someone assumed I was the secretary. I don't think it would have any impact at all. And I just don't see how anybody could actually legitimately claim that we, we live in a culture that discourages women from doing whatever they want to do. I've never met a man who wasn't enthusiastic about having women as colleagues as long as they were good enough. There are men who are resentful about all the special hiring protocols and and all that quite understandably so but I've never met a man who said he didn't believe you know a qualified woman could do the job never and certainly in our culture at large it's the exact opposite everything in our culture is is cheering on women and encouraging their their aspirations
0: I don't know of the specific studies but I've heard now this may be from feminist sources I don't remember where I heard this but if you have resumes that are sent out and they have female names versus men names mm-hmm. and the men names are more likely to get called back. Yeah. And same with cited research. I'm not sure if that yeah, is I true, mean, but I want to yeah. know what your thoughts are. Well, on you know, you know, I mean, these
1: these studies. Yeah, I've, I've looked into some of those kinds of studies. There are also studies that say the opposite. So, it, you know, I looked at one study. It was a very small sample size. And uh, it it made that claim that I think this was a a particular study and I can't remember the the exact details, but I think it was, it had to do with a a hiring of um, a lab supervisor. So some in some science discipline. And uh, the claim was that the, um, you know, male applicants on identical resumes was, were more likely to be chosen. There are all sorts of problems. It was a very small sample size. The, um, median age of those who are making the choice was quite old actually it was i think 50 years old um, there were questions about the cultural background of those who are making the the selections there's also the possibility that uh, you know and this is sacrilege but there's also the possibility that in some cases the experience of those making the choice had been that a, a male lab supervisor had actually been more successful in the past than female lab supervisors so you know there there might actually be a reason why it wasn't just pure sexism um but but um yeah i mean you know you, there would have to be much more work done on on uh, and a very large sample size i think before anybody could determine conclusively so, anything like that
0: something i've been asking myself is what Evidence would have to exist in order for me to believe that there is systemic racism. As much as I look into systemic racism and the claims of the radical left, I don't see that it holds much water. And then I thought, okay, well, the best evidence that I've seen is the resumes between blacks and, and whites, you know, with the, whiting, the whiteness of the names. I don't know if you've saw, seen that no, study. I, so I don't, you, I, it's I don't similar, where you send out resumes to different agencies and then the ones with black names get called less, but then if they change their black name to a white name, like Connor instead of instead of O'Shane, then they're more likely to get called back, but but when I looked at the studies, the actual studies, also Asian names got called less, so then you would expect that Asians would do worse in society, but then Asians mm-hmm. tend to do better right. so is A- it that Asians they do are better doing despite the, it? the
1: best of, of any group in in uh, North American society in terms of uh, median income so, so what evidence yeah. would? What I mean, it's would very change difficult, isn't it? I mean, I, I was thinking more, too, about what you're saying about the, um, you know, female names on applications. Like, we're now in a situation, too, where um, a, a, a person, and, and the thing that, that, that I remember that feminists claim, too, was that both women and men, if they were making the choice about this lab supervisor, tended to choose the man. So, you know, what, what does that say about sexism? If, if women make the same choices that men make, I mean, that's gets really complicated, you know, so then we have all this emphasis by feminists on hiring more women, but what difference would it make then if women themselves tended to prefer men in certain circumstances? But, but, but to go back to that, like if, if you could prove, and I think it's very, very difficult, but if you could prove that there was a bias. You, how could you prove what the source of the bias was that's that's the real difficulty because I think we now live in a society where if I were a man and I was looking at two candidates and one was a woman and one was a man I don't want to get into the racial thing because that seems seems different but I as a man I would be very reluctant to hire a woman if the man was equally qualified precisely because we live in this situation where every man knows he's just one false accusation away from reputational and career suicide. Who could blame a man from deciding he doesn't want the hassle? Sure, maybe he loves women and, you know, in general what thinks they're potentially just as brilliant as any man, but he knows that we now live in the Me Too era and have lived in that era for a lot longer than Me Too has been in action, where if he just happens to get one of the few women who is a little bit crazy about these kinds of things, who's hypersensitive about perceived sexism, and she makes an accusation against him, it's over for him. You know, his life is destroyed. Who could blame a man for wanting to protect himself against that kind of grief? So sometimes, you know, feminist initiatives might have all sorts of unintended consequences. And I would think that resentment on the part of men and also, well, um, caution about exposing themselves to the hazards of having um, women in the workplace, those would be possible unintended consequences.
0: So the resentments on both sides then, because there's, as far as I see from the feminist theorists, it seems as though they're motivated by resentment, and then that engenders resentment on the side of the men, mm-hmm. which then breeds more resentment yeah. on the side of the women.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a vicious circle, as far as I can see. So what can we do? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is... The... Does
0: it have to be mm-hmm. the men that stops resenting the women, or the women mm-hmm. that stops resenting the men? I think that everybody should just stop resenting <laughs> yeah. individually, so each person, each person should, but in your point of view, what do you think well, a if... feminist... What if there's a third-year feminist watching this, and she's understanding that you're making some sense, you're saying some things that she wanted to say, and she has, want, she has wanted to say and, wants, and continually wants to say, but can't, because the repercussions, what advice would you give to her? To not contribute, <laughs> because I see yeah. that they are contributing to the problem well, that they're trying to solve.
1: absolutely, I mean, that, that's the whole thing. And, and they make themselves deeply, deeply unhappy in the process, I mean, there are all sorts of studies on the internet where you take a look at someone before she became a radical feminist and she's you know happy and smiling and having a great time with her life and then after she becomes a radical feminist you know she's dyed her hair blue she's all pierced and she's got an extremely dour and angry look now, on her face do you face. think that's a
0: causal effect or do you think <laughs> that she starts to become now this is this is
1: it's politically
0: a... <laughs> correct but she starts to become unattractive and then Feminist she became
1: more resentful as a result. Start to appeal to her I mean, feminist you theory? know, it's it's probably a complicated case, you know, and, and it may might well be because she had some bad experiences that that uh, turned her that way too. So so one shouldn't be too uh, superficial about it. But but um, well, I are mean, there studies
0: done on the attractiveness of feminists versus some other control group?
1: <laughs> well, everybody. I'm serious. I actually want to know. I don't know. I don't know if there've been any studies done, but um, what would you uh, expect the results of that to be? <laughs> I, not, I, don't I don't want to get even, you in any more even, hot water, but you, <laughs> it
0: seems like it doesn't matter to you. So. I don't
1: know. I don't know. David and I have, have talked and laughed about this just recently, actually. We were looking at you know some university presidents and other academics who were very strident feminists and noting that very few of them were, were very attractive. But, but I'm not sure about that. I mean... Um, I've had interviews. In fact, I think with with Gad Sad, uh, he he uh,
0: he posited yeah, that. Yeah, he
1: he tried to to make that claim, and I I actually I'm not sure. I've met many beautiful women who were also really angry feminists, and and so I you know I I, I don't feel that that's necessarily the the, the cause or the result. But um, I you know I I feel that women are in a position where women can back off feminism because at least in my experience, and I don't know that this would be an experience accepted by most feminists, but in my experience, most men, despite their resentment about what has happened over the last 20 to 30 years, most men are willing to, to call off the gender war. Most men, even if they hate feminism with a passion, are interested in living with women both on an individual, personal level, having relationships with women and working with women in a peaceable way in society. They're not interested in keeping women down or anything like that. And all these claims about how they want women to go back into the kitchen or whatever. I've never met a man like that. Um, so so I think men are willing to, to call off the war and and if, if women would just be willing to. But I don't know. I, there, there just does seem to be that... A deep resentment begins for women as soon as they encounter feminism. Maybe it's there. Maybe that's one of women's weaknesses. You know, I mean, we know what men's we know what men's weaknesses are. We know the shadow side of men, and that is aggression, competitiveness, capacity for violence. What's women's shadow side? And, I, and we've never discussed that as a society. I don't think women are happy to look at women's shadow side, and men aren't either. Men tend to put women on a pedestal. And I think one of women's shadowy elements is a tendency to resentment, to self-pity, Uh, to blaming of others, uh, to refusing responsibility for um, the things that make one happy in one's own life. And so I think feminism really plays into that because it says it's not, you know, none of this is your responsibility. Whatever happens in your life, whatever form of dissatisfaction or unhappiness, it all has this external source and you're just an innocent victim of it. And that's both incredibly attractive and a recipe for continued you know, unhappiness and anger and frustration.
0: Were you using the word shadow in a Jungian sense or just shadow well, in, in a personality sense?
1: Just in a general sense. Because uh, okay. yeah. that's yeah, something I'm actually exploring. I think that's well.
0: the, the core question of the documentary. Because it, is, it does seem to be a political documentary on the face of it, which is when does the left go too far. But as I study it deeper and deeper, it seems to me to be more psychological and philosophical in that. When can excess unexamined compassion go too far?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: where do you see it going too far?
1: Well, what um, are some,
0: give me some examples of particularly ruinous feminist <laughs> theory or feminist theories that have gone too far off the deep end?
1: Well, um, gee, uh, where do I start? In application, I mean. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, all sorts of ruined male lives. Um, both young men at university who have been, uh, you know, investigated and expelled for um, various infractions or forms of misconduct, sometimes even as um, insubstantial as, I, I, one young man wrote to me, he'd been expelled from his school because two young women had complained about him that his gaze was too intense that he had looked at them too intensely. And there actually is built into sexual harassment policies at universities all across North America that looking can be a form of sexual harassment. So sexual harassment guidelines that have gone completely crazy is a really good example. And it has hurt young men. Um, All it takes is for a a woman to complain. I have uh, heard from countless men who simply for not picking up on women's um very subtle social cues and i think you know this is one of those cases where men don't tend to pick up on those women are very very sensitive about these things and they think men should be able to pick up and so if a a young man is interested in a young woman that he's met at college and he starts asking her out and that's what he thinks he should do and she's too shy or nervous or um cowardly to just say look i'm not interested in you so she she never really says that but she, she says,
0: never says a definitive no She'll she never say, says I'm, a, busy, I'm busy or i'm sorry yeah, I'm sorry that's... i
1: can't do it i'm no. not feeling you know what whatever and so she never says no and he keeps pursuing her because that's what men do men have been conditioned to do that from day one and, you know, from, from, uh, from our, our primitive ancestors, and so he keeps pursuing her, and then she complains about his behavior to somebody at the school, and that's the end of it for him. He's now charged with harassment, and he's either disciplined in some way, or even in some cases is expelled and uh, so that I, I would say sexual harassment the attempt to keep women safe even if what that means do you want me to move this no guy? no no um, it, no i'm just kidding yeah move <laughs> just in case
0: come down uh, even what's his if, name again
1: yeah uh, that's Stanislav
0: Stanislav come down come down Stanislav so even
1: down. if it means like the idea of safety is one of the things i think that that feminism has gone crazy with the idea of safety that and that means not just physical safety but psychological and emotional safety which really means that a woman should never feel uncomfortable even for a short period of time or even if the basis of her feeling of discomfort is completely irrational so i think that's a terrible way that that feminist theory about women's safety has just gone crazy and has ruined all sorts of lives um you know have, there's a...
0: have you read frankfurt's essay on bullshit the technical bullshit bs
1: no no okay
0: that's from the 90s it's Harry Frankfurt, I believe his name is, he's, I believe he was a cognitive psychologist or just a regular psychologist. And then he said, what bullshit is, now it's, it's technical, so I don't, it's something like there's a salience landscape, so I don't know how to explain this. Look, we see a chair. Okay, we look at that and we see chair. We look at that and we see tripod. We look at that and we see DVD. A feminist might say, well, why are you putting them into the category of chair, into DVD, into tripod? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a valid claim. Now, that's related to something called the frame problem in AI, which is how do you categorize an infinite amount that's in front of you? How do you put it into categories? But then there's actually a pre-egoic response. So why do you even think of a chair as something to be put into a category? So there's something that happens pre-conscious, and that's related to the landscape that's in front of you, and what do you find salient? Or it's also called relevance realization. Mm -hmm. And Harry Frankfurt said that, you can't lie to yourself. Now, I actually think you can lie to yourself, and I think self-deception is a true, a true phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But he was saying, let's say you can't lie to yourself because you can't tell yourself, I want to be interested in X, Y, or Z, and then just become interested in it. Or you can't tell yourself if you have low self-esteem, no, no, I'm the most attractive woman there is, or I'm the most attractive man there is. So you can't lie to yourself if you don't believe it, but you can BS yourself. The way that you can <laughs> BS yourself is that you can present something as salient. So. You look at this pen. Now the pen has become salient to you. So you've looked at it, and remember there's a landscape of salience. Now this is gonna become more salient, which is gonna make you pay attention to it, which is gonna make it more salient. So there's a feedback loop of salience. He called that BS. The inappropriate hijacking of salience is BS. The most, the most common example is something from The Simpsons where, politicians do this, where in The Simpsons, Kane was, or Kodos or Kane, the aliens were becoming presidents and they were dressed as Bill Clinton. And then he's like, ladies and gentlemen, we must move forward, not backwards, not sideways, not forwards, but upwards and twirling, twirling, always twirling towards freedom. And the crowd just cheers. And it's because he's saying words that don't actually mean anything, but they evoke an emotional response. Mm -hmm. So something I'm wondering is the connection between BS and trigger words and this expansion of racism, sexism Mm -hmm. to mean things that are just benign or, or mm-hmm. relatively benign relatively compared benign. to their original yeah. meaning but yet the original the original evocation with attached to these meanings the connotations remain the same mm-hmm. and the punishments also remain the same
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that's something i was exploring i want to know mm-hmm. what, what your thoughts well, were on that
1: <laughs> i don't understand the, the the theory very well probably but yeah i do think that that's what's going on is that the idea that uh, you know certain Certain domains of expression can be very damaging, you know, for the vulnerable, the marginalized, the uh, traditionally excluded or oppressed. This is something that feminism has really attached itself to. And so whereas, yeah, I can see that, um, you, know, uh, you know, a person advocating violence against women or something like that, or, or, or suggesting that all women's claims of violence are actually... Um, you know, narcissistic projections or something like that. That would be, you know, pretty hideous. But it, the, the, the category of what is harmful to women has been so dramatically expanded over the last couple of decades that there is almost nothing, outside of actual feminist discourse that isn't considered deeply harmful and so that it would be you know to answer the question the original question where does the left go too far where does especially the feminist left go too far it's by continually expanding the category of harm and by claiming that words themselves harm and of course that's not you know entirely false since words do harm uh, in in certain kinds of ways in different kinds of contexts, but by claiming that all sorts of previously quite harmless or mer- maybe merely irritating types of discourse that I might disagree with or that people could argue about that that actually that they, they actually constitute some kind of um, like existential threat to women or other categories of, of uh, vulnerable people, and and that's what's used then to you know deplatform and disinvite or, you know, it gives the the impetus to shout people down because supposedly their speech is so heinous, so damaging that it actually constitutes an existential threat to people. And you hear that all the time now, you know, that this so-and-so, if so-and-so is allowed to speak, it makes the campus fundamentally unsafe. How? you know it's it's never made clear supposedly because it encourages men you know to do terrible things to run rampage and start raping women because they've heard something that contradicts a feminist doctrine i mean it's just ludicrous or or that it damages women so much you know that oh, sorry That's cool. Uh, cool. damages women so much that they won't be able to get out of bed the next morning uh, you know it, it's 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 bizarre but you see that all the time you know that you in some way, you deny my right to exist. You see students saying that over and over again, merely because the speaker is articulating a, you know, a conservative view of, of gender or whatever it happens to be.
0: And so that... So how do we overcome that, that argument, that rebuttal, which is you're denying my identity? which is me, mm-hmm. which is my right. right, to exist. Yeah. Yeah. So if how you, do you if overcome you, that?
1: If you like, if you're a trans person for, in, for instance, and somebody is saying that that a trans identity is actually a form of mental illness or whatever. And, 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 and uh, you know, so, so therefore that, that constitutes a, a fundamental threat to the person's very existence. I mean, how do you overcome it? I, I don't know. I mean, you, you simply, I would think that as the administrators simply have to say that's too bad. You know, that, 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 the, that the university is a free speech zone, that that's the one thing sacred, that, in, you know, ideas about inclusion and safety and comfort are secondary when it comes to university discourse. But it seems that universities aren't willing to do that, and, and most university professors aren't aren't interested in that.
0: Well, what about the, the counter-argument, which is that if I'm a man and you're saying gender doesn't exist and I identify as a man, is that not an I, an attack against my identity?
1: Well. I mean attacks against men's identity are tolerated all the time. You know, if we if we if we took seriously the feminist and social justice warrior kind of discourse about harms to people. Is that it then, has to be against
0: a, a historically oppressed Yes, people. it has to be.
1: Yeah, right, because you know, the the things that are going on now in university classrooms all across North America are deeply harmful. But what about to men, a, what I would a, say but
0: What about somebody who is Let's say the, the pinnacle of historically oppressed. So, a black lesbian, a black trans person who is in a wheelchair and has glasses. <laughs> okay, so, I, it, it, and is extremely short. Okay, so the most, and is low on intelligence is the most oppressed of all the intersections. So we get down to the, to the root. What if they're against the historical mm-hmm. oppression narrative, like them mm-hmm. themselves, and they say, yeah. by you telling me that I'm historically oppressed, that goes against my identity of not being historically <laughs> oppressed. So what would they say <laughs> then?
1: Uh, they would say that, uh, I mean, I don't know what they would say, but uh, probably that that person has internalized their oppression and doesn't understand, you know, and, and you know, there, there are all sorts of cases of, of people. And it seems Owen, like it's
0: unfalsifiable.
1: It is absolutely. That's why it's it's so powerful, because um, it, because it is unfalsifiable. It, it can always be reasserted. Then that's what makes it so magical. Is that no matter how many times you bring forward evidence to say that the claims are not true for various reasons. Um, The person making the original claim of oppression can always say, but, you know, unbeknownst to you, or there are all these invisible, I mean, that's the genius of all these social justice discourses that that they've come up with ideas like microaggressions and unconscious bias and all sorts of things that can't really ever be measured, but can still be asserted to exist, especially in any case where the, um, the performance, the outcomes of a particular um, identity group don't meet what the proponents say they should. So if, you know, for whatever, if, it's, if it happens to be feminists who say that, you know, the number of women in physics is not where it should be, you, know, you can say, well, we've got all sorts of initiatives to encourage women to come into physics. Doesn't matter, they'll still claim that there is some kind of systemic bias or some kind of un- unconscious oppression. It can what never if be disproved. What if
0: someone says, I'm, you're denying my identity and you say, okay, maybe I am. Is that the end of the world? Because look, what if I say <laughs> he, people who have had laser eye surgery, so I've had laser eye surgery, I'm trying to come up with an analogy. Okay, let's say people who have glasses. People who have glasses are defective in some way. Let's just say I said that, because I used to have glasses, so I can say this to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, then you might say I'm challenging your identity, but I can make that, you can make that claim for any statement mm-hmm. that I make because ideas, you can always attach yeah, yourself to an sure, idea. Absolutely. So why is the claim that you are challenging my identity a claim that shuts down conversations? Mm-hmm, because well. any idea, if you attach yourself to it, can challenge an identity. Mm-hmm. Now they may come up with some sort of response, well, which is that, that if it's it, gender, sexuality, yeah. or ethnicity, those are the three primary.
1: Mm-hmm. They they will say that those are. the... But there's an explosion of historic, those now. So there's fat,
0: there's fat, yeah. and then there's and then there's unattractiveness, Various which is associated with fatness.
1: Yeah, you know, also there are all sorts of things. But yeah, you could say that uh, you know to attack my religion is a far greater harm. You know, if I'm a, a, a devout Catholic, and every time I go into the classroom, my professor is mocking, or even not mocking, but simply. Um, Attempting to disprove Catholic doctrine that would be deeply harmful and yet somehow you know that particular kind of Attack on a person's core beliefs or deepest identity isn't one that social justice warriors worry about at all So yeah, you've just proved that it's it's you know completely artificial. It's completely socially constructed to use the SJW term um, You know, but they, they would say I mean th- th- That's absolutely true, but um the, the, the idea is that um, I guess that the particular categories of identity that people in academia are most interested in now are the categories that they say are are people whose life outcomes are you know most impacted by uh, various forms of oppression but I mean, I'm not you know, making a very good also, case for that. They would also because... have to show that
0: just by challenging someone who's historically oppressed and their identity that that in the manner which it's happening in civil discourse on university campuses, that that has a deleterious effect instead of a positive one. Also, right. especially compared to the alternative, which is being indoctrinated in a feminist or a radical mm-hmm. left theories sure. and see the effects of that on well-being, on, on well-being and then maybe monetary success.
1: Mm-hmm. So one would have yeah. to
0: demonstrate that. And
1: you could never demonstrate it because you'd have to have some kind of con- control group that...
0: You should get some people from the STEM.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, who's to say that having your identity, your core beliefs or, or some aspect of yourself that really matters, who's to say that having that attacked doesn't make you stronger. I honestly
0: think that that's what should happen on a, on a semi-regular basis, especially at university, because you're not going in 18 thinking that you're going to come out the same person when you're 22. If you were, why go to university? There's no point. You're not growing. You're not changing.
1: Mm-hmm. So you yeah. should
0: have your identity, well, not necessarily attacked, but definitely challenged. challenged and, and then yeah. you assess and change based on I mean, what you're it, hearing. It is,
1: it is difficult because, you know, like with everything, there is a core of truth in, in feminist and other... You know, SJW kind of claims. And it's true that if you are relentlessly told that you're no good in some way, um, it's going to have a bad impact on most people. Some people will be strong enough to overcome it. And actually, it, in those cases, will end up even, you know, maybe achieving more than they would have otherwise. But a lot of people will be hurt by it.
0: Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best, converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly, behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
1: And so, yeah, nobody wants a university to be a place where, where people are belittled or scorned or mocked for either for, for reasons beyond their control because of characteristics that they were born with or indeed really for their for their beliefs either. But so there has to be some kind of balance where there's a kind of basic uh, a baseline of of respect but also respectful challenge and and that's what has been completely lost at universities so today. there is no
0: respectful challenge anymore we know I that it can go so, no. too far on one end which is that the constant denial of someone's potential inside by saying you can't amount to anything you're a woman, and therefore you're never yeah. going to be good at, at spatial reasoning, mm-hmm. so just don't bother. Yeah. So that's not good. No one would say that that's good. Well, very few, very few people yeah, would say few, that that's good.
1: very few people would say that's okay. good, that that, so, that should ever that, be said to anybody for any reason, especially, especially because of some characteristic that they can't control.
0: Okay, okay. Razor blades are like diving boards. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to dot com slash everything and use the code everything. So why don't you give me some more examples of feminist theory gone wrong in practice. So for example, I remember you wrote about, well, all of your Studio Brew videos are this. Yeah,
1: they're all about that. Yeah, I'm just, well, you know, um... So many um, professors, male professors, who've um, either lost their career altogether or have had terrible experiences as a result of claims, mostly by women, that uh, they've been, you know, committed some kind of misconduct. All of that is is, uh, completely out of control right now. I mean, I I did a, a, a case Just recently, uh, a man at uh, Brock University, for example, who uh, it's not clear what he did, but he was investigated for sexual harassment and he was found guilty uh, of sexual harassment. And the the claim was that he went out drinking with a couple of his students. Uh, They were of drinking age. They went out drinking um, after class. Two of the students, one male, one female, came back to his office. The male uh, left the office, i guess it was fairly late at night by this point i think they were still drinking maybe in his office the woman stayed on female student and he approached her in some way he went and sat next to her he touched her not sexually from the sounds of it but he touched her and he expressed some kind of desire and for that he was suspended for a number of years uh he had to go through all sorts of training and um you know he was publicly humiliated uh, and uh he tried to come back to the classroom about 4 years after this alleged incident occurred uh, there was a huge student protest it, it was said that he was a um, that he was a perpetrator of violence again there's that language you know that that he uh, that he had perpetrated sexual violence and therefore he should not be allowed back into the classroom so there's always this eliding of very minor forms of misconduct with really serious forms of misconduct. He never did violence to anybody. There's absolutely no evidence that once the woman said no or left his office or whatever happened, that he in any way, you know, tried to pursue her or didn't take no for an answer or was threatening or anything like that. Um, And and they actually canceled his class as a result of the student protest. And it's not clear what's gonna happen to this guy now, but his, his career is over. Uh, he'll probably be quietly retired or or something it's doubtful he'll ever be back in the classroom and and you know he's publicly disgraced for doing nothing or for what you know at, at worst it was a moment of drunken indiscretion uh, so things like that you know are happening all the time and you know, there's a there's a whisper network in academia where uh, a number of women can decide that they don't like a particular um, professor or graduate student or whatever it happens to be. Might be just because he's creepy or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, here's where the the inequality of of sexual attractiveness, you know, really comes into play. It's a kind of bigotry in itself. A a very handsome man can probably get away, you know, and a very sexually confident man can probably get away with all sorts of things if the women find him attractive that a less attractive man can't get away with. I did a Fiamengo file just recently on a man, a very elderly man uh, at UC Irvine, who was, um, Uh, forced to retire at age 84 if you can imagine and complaints had begun against him when he was in his 70s the complaints were that he lavishly complimented women uh, sometimes with sexually tinged expressions of admiration they were things like he said he is alleged to have said to one woman i've just been told that women don't like to hear that they're beautiful but I know that that isn't the case for you. The woman is reported to have been too, um, intimidated to tell him that she didn't like to be complimented. Various women came forward and complained about him and said that they felt demeaned and undermined in their professional capacity because he would make these compliments. He also kissed them on both cheeks. He was a Spanish born man. So this was his cultural context. Um, so
0: what did they do? Go to his supervisors, and then the supervisors had a talk, or?
1: Yeah, they they complained about him. He was told to stop. He didn't stop. Eventually, it went to a, a you know a board of investigation that found him guilty of these of these various allegations. No, I mean a bit of physical touching, but nothing. You know, he would touch somebody on the shoulders, but it was essentially the compliments. I can't imagine that he was teaching at this point in his late 70s, but he was still on campus. He had donated a lot of money um, to, uh, to his, his um, faculty, and he was in love with the discipline and also in love with women. And so eventually they, they forced him to retire. He's not allowed to return to campus. His name is being taken off two buildings that he endowed financially with his own money. And it's also being taken off various scholarships and fellowships that he contributed to. And basically, you know, the final years of his life, he's now been completely disgraced because he complimented women and made some sexually tinged. At one point he said to somebody, I think the worst thing maybe he's alleged to have said, although he denies it was that um, he said to one woman, you were so animated while you were making that presentation that I thought you were going to have an orgasm. Oh my goodness, you know, how terrible he has to be ejected from from the campus. So that, you know, that kind of thing. I just think that is utterly ridiculous and excessive. And it says something appalling about the delicate sensibilities of these women professors and graduate students. I mean, couldn't they have simply avoided the man? Couldn't they have actually said to him, I would really prefer that you not speak to me in those ways because it makes me uncomfortable. I appreciate the compliment, but please don't say it anymore. It seems none of them could. They had to go to a higher authority and then they had to be, have him, you know, dealt with in in this very humiliating and demeaning way. So. Things, things like that, um, the, you know, the constant redefining of ordinary human interactions. Oh, and the reason that I thought of him was that it goes back to, because someone actually wrote to me after he saw my video and he said that he had taken a class from this professor years and years ago in the 1980s. And when he was a younger man, he was really good looking and lots, you know, people loved him. So probably this was a behavior, maybe he took it from Spain, you know, I don't know, Um, and this was a behavior that had been rewarded or at least happily tolerated for years and years while he was a professor. Then once he was a much more elderly man, and there was this younger cohort of women, it was no longer acceptable. You know, it, it seems... A kind of really flagrant bigotry that he happened to be an elderly man and that this was no longer acceptable, and so he had to be drummed out. So, there's just so many examples of this where either false allegations, often allegations that could never be proved of things, you know, supposedly done or said behind closed doors, the man denies it, the woman insists it's the case, he has to go, or cases where even if the man admits, it's nothing like sexual assault, you know, or it's nothing like some a man saying, you know, look, I'll give you an A if you sleep with me. Mm-hmm. And if you don't sleep with me, I'm gonna fail you in this course, which obviously is totally unacceptable. But, you know, there are they're, they're cases of an older man usually falling in love with a beautiful woman and telling her that, and that's it. That's enough to get him, you know, and, you know sometimes people write and say, well, you know, he shouldn't have done that. Okay, sure. But, you know, the the ruination of a person's long respectable career because of one bit of misconduct that I cannot believe actually seriously damages the person who receives it. And that's the other thing is that feminism does really induce in those who embrace it, a desire to be damaged by these basically non-damaging actions and there are all sorts of articles where you read about how you know the woman was deeply depressed she couldn't finish her course of studies because this man told her that he was in love with her i don't know what to say about that you know what what I just can't believe it, that being told that you're so beautiful and attractive and desirable and this man's in love with you is going to make it impossible for you to get out of bed and continue your studies. It just doesn't make sense to me. But that is presented to us as the real harm of this, what's called now sexual predation. And so this man's life has to be ruined as a result. And so the suggestion is that women are such frail reeds that they can't deal with, you know, anything at all. Uh, And, and that, um, but of course, in other cases, if they had been themselves in love with the professor, then that would have been a very different kind of thing. So it's all based on the, you know, the, the perception of the young woman and depending on whether the advance is welcome or not, you know, it's it's either a harm or it isn't a harm, and and the man's life is decided based on her perception. So, I come across those kinds of things all the time and find them bizarre and disturbing.
0: Yeah, I see university as almost like a boot camp. Like the seals have, hell week. The seals have hell week, and university's like a timid version of hell week. But it's still a boot camp for four years, and you're supposed to prove yourself, and that's what the degree is. It's I. Withstood this, not necessarily some sort of sexual,
1: yeah, no, of course, violent, yeah,
0: violent no, you, but yeah, it is supposed
1: to be you're supposed to deal with this. I went through this much stress, I went through this
0: much Mm -hmm. cognitive effort, yeah, and I came out, yeah, and it's a proxy for the real world. And so, if you can't Mm -hmm. handle the university, then what are these faculty doing when they're shielding them in this bubble saying you're ready for the real world, Mm -hmm. and also, especially if feminism says that the real world. Is as is, bad is really, as, or even worse. The, the university, maybe. university is just a reflection of the real world. Mm-hmm. So you're sending them out in the real world, where there is no there is no agency to just expel somebody for giving you a compliment.
1: Well, you know, I, I think that actually and they want to create that. Yeah, they do want to create that, and that is being created. There are all sorts of cases of you know in the workplace now um, where there are uh, sexual harassment guidelines, and I don't think it's possible to have a, a company anymore that doesn't have sexual harassment guidelines and it's illegal you know to, to uh, sexually harass anybody. And, and what that means, of course, is not the terrible thing that, that you know where somebody uh, insists on some kind of sexual favor from somebody. But you know anything, sexual joking, you know telling an off color joke, uh, expressing, Sexual interest in someone, asking someone out on a date—all those kinds of things can can get men fired now. And so, yes, I think feminists are trying to. So, extend. what is their end game? Um, I Do they think... just want
0: power? Is it all about power? They don't care about reason or logic or consistency.
1: Well, like, what is it? They well, they certainly wouldn't accept that characterization. They, they would say that they want a world in which women don't have to feel vulnerable to male sexual or other kinds of um, harassment or, or intimidation.
0: Okay, so then my what I would say would be something like that sounds like an Oedipal mother. Like you just you're just you have to ha- you have to mm-hmm. insta- instantiate mm-hmm. some sort of t- totalitarian yeah. regime in order to make sure that every interaction that a woman mm-hmm. has with a man or another woman or a man with a man although they don't seem to care about that no. too much yeah. is is peaceful yeah
1: mm-hmm. like now they, they, they might they, say they would say that that's worth it oh, or
0: also they would say well look at progress we didn't accept we used to be able to accept cat calling on a regular basis now that's not socially acceptable mm-hmm. yeah so this is just in line with the march of progress mm-hmm. okay
1: yeah
0: i'm not sure what to say to that because that does sound to, to me if social values are just changed on a regular basis which they are it does sound reasonable. Now what would the counterargument to that be?
1: Well that it, it, they, they have massive double standards in how all of this is going to be implemented because there is no reasonable standard of interaction. If you are a hypersensitive you know fainting couch feminist, there is no kind of interaction that might not potentially be offensive and discriminatory and, uh, you know, damaging. Uh, if I make a sexual joke, okay, I, 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 I maybe I'm a man, I, I have to accept that I can no longer make a, a sexual joke. Can I come to your cubicle and make a non-sexual joke? Maybe the woman is going to say that that made her feel undermined in some way or vulnerable or harassed. Uh, can I contradict an idea that you have in a, in a committee meeting when we're throwing around ideas? Can I interrupt you if I feel that you're going on too long? Uh, can I uh, point to you and say, what do you think? I mean, there, you know, there's just so many different things. Um, there was a recent case that you may have heard of, because I think it was um, fairly well known, uh, this is a meeting, I'm doing a fumingophile on this. There's a meeting of a body called the International Studies Association. So this is people who do, you know, conflict um, analysis and basically experts in international affairs. They have a yearly meeting. they their meeting last year in last April, 2018. They were at a com- at the conference, and uh, it was in a hotel. They were all in an elevator going up, and um, a woman, a professor, professor of gender studies, asked everybody what floor they would like. And she was, you know, standing near the mm. whatever it's called, and so she was going to punch everybody's floor in. One elderly man said, "Ladies' lingerie." Now, I guess this is a joke referring to the time when there used to be. Um, you know conductors and elevators you know and mm-hmm. they would take you to the different floors in a department store so is that a intolerable <laughs> off-limits assault on a, a female sensibility this woman felt it was uh, she did not confront him about it in the moment but she complained to the international studies association um I don't know, the, the, the body that, that uh, makes decisions about membership and conduct and everything. And, and they decided that he had contravened their code of conduct and that he would have to apologize to her. He didn't feel he wanted to apologize because he didn't feel he'd done anything wrong. And uh, so he refused to apologize and that's it. He's, he's out of the, the organization. Now that that person does not strike me as the sort of person she of course feels that you know she's striking a blow for women's dignity and that what he said was, you know, clearly completely socially unacceptable. I don't want that person or a person with that kind of mentality adjudicating what kinds of interactions adult scholars can have at a conference. Because that is a person who would never be satisfied. That is not a reasonable person. That's not somebody that could ever really be satisfied. I can imagine that that person would find all sorts of reason to feel aggrieved and upset over however she was treated in the course of various academic conversations. What if you challenged her interpretation? Would she see that as, you know, what if you challenged her Feminist reading of some kind of situation. Any anything would would make a person like that. Well, you get accused of that
0: just by challenging people's feminist opinions. That you are exciting violence inciting Mm -hmm. violence yeah
1: sure, sure anytime you challenge anything that a feminist deeply believes it's seen as a kind of personal assault with widespread damaging consequences so so i don't want to live in that world i mean i guess it might be possible to imagine what that world would look like and a feminist would say that's better than having to live you know with the day in day out sexism of the society we used to have which i don't believe ever existed you know i've talked to all sorts of men who grew up in the 1950s and 60s, and they said, you know, there, there was never a time when it was acceptable to, you know, be really crude and horrible to women. There were always codes of conduct, and sure, some people broke them, but in general, people worked things out. And But this is the thing that the feminist insists ha, ha, has never existed, and now, supposedly, it's as bad as it ever was. But, yeah, I don't want those people in charge of human interaction so
0: do they see it as being as bad now as it was back then or do they see a line of progress and if so how do they measure that progress
1: well i you know you'd have to ask them i don't i don't know i mean some i think many of them would say that nothing has really improved
0: or that it's now changed it's subtle. it's systemic
1: yes Yeah. Now it's much more subtle. Now it's microaggressions. Now it's, you know, a whole different range of ways that men assert their dominance over women or, you know, undermine women's sense of self or, or whatever. Yeah. That's what they'd say that, that, that the sexism is constant at the form it takes probably changes. I've talked to another man, um, speaking of the same association, the international studies association, he, um, you know often it is older men who who maybe you know don't quite understand all the nuances of what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say yeah, and but that, that's always know, the, been
0: the case that's always been the case older people have always been disconnected yeah, with sure. the younger generation mm-hmm. on, in almost every respect
1: yeah and so and and what i find remarkable is that the entire lack of of tolerance or compassion on the part of younger women towards these older men. This fellow, he was asked to be what's called a discussant, which means basically that he's tasked with, uh, once there's a panel discussion, he's supposed to respond and ask them questions about their um, papers. And so he, he, and he was an expert in um, uh, military intervention and, uh, and they were all talking about women in conflict zones. So the first thing he did was he wanted to write an email to these women and say, you know, I'm the discussant and just kind of introduce himself. So he wrote an email and the subject was Hello Women. I don't think he said ladies i think he said women hello women immediately he got an email back from the chair of the of the panel saying you know some some or all of these members may identify as women but they don't appreciate you know being addressed in this kind of way so he said okay okay you know i mean he just didn't get it and, uh, and then at the actual discussion, he questioned their feminist framework. They were all speaking from a feminist point of view. He questioned their, their feminist framework and asked them, you know, various questions about oh, you know, just very basic things. Aren't women actually better off in the West? Now you know, as a result of centuries of progress, than they are in you know certain other countries, and you know they were outraged at the racism and you know the sexist assumptions. They complained about him too, and he was investigated for you know some kind of vague harassment or just failure to respect their feminist principles. So what these cases to me indicate is that there really is there's no way that you could ever you know if we tried to create a rule book telling people, you know, what what exactly constitutes respectful interaction? Because that's what it always says in these codes of conduct. What what constitutes treating someone with respect? I might feel that treating me with respect means you never contradict me. You know, you never challenge my ideas. Somebody else might say, that's not respect, that's condescension. I want to be challenged. I want to, you know, be challenged to defend my ideas and, and be treated like an equal. Um, so, so basically there's no way that you could ever know for sure that you're not offending someone in a way that they're going to perceive to be sexist. And so this, for one thing, I don't agree that the utopian, uh, ideal of a, a world in which people never just sort of spontaneously say things to one another. I don't want to live in that world. I don't think things are bad as they are. I, I trust my fellow human beings to, you know if they say something appropriate
0: well you also just said something interesting which is trust i trust my fellow human beings and something i've been researching with regards to trust first of all trust is the number one resource of any country that's productive mm-hmm. and second you can't have trust without allowing the other person the freedom to fail to
1: fail otherwise exactly. there's no trust mm-hmm. that's why right.
0: when you fall backwards it doesn't mean anything if you're falling backwards on the couch. You have to have someone else there who could move their arms and you can get hurt.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you know, in order
0: for there to be trust, that means that you have to allow the other person to potentially hurt you. Yeah. Now, if you're never allowing that, then there is no trust.
1: No, there's no trust. And uh, there's only
0: enforcement. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, only, there's, only there's only exactly one lo- road to walk down.
1: Yeah. It's going to be a very totalitarian environment and you're still not going to achieve what you say you want to achieve because, you know, there's a million ways. I can offend you
0: okay so part of the problem seems to me to be that a discussion as to what constitutes excessive hurt that to me is fine but then the problem mm-hmm. to me seems to be discussing the limits of that boundary is not acceptable by the, by anybody who's not the person who's being offended
1: mm-hmm. so that's yeah. to me seems i mean i to be have the... a problem already with well, I have a certain problem already with even trying to define what would be, you know, because in different contexts, you know, different things are appropriate. And, it, you know, it's so incredibly complicated how human beings interact. And if, if we're not going to accept that women and other traditionally marginalized peoples are adult, adult enough to be able to say in the moment, I would prefer that you not, you know, blah, 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 and, and you know and deal with it in a in a in, in in the moment if we're not going to trust that people can do that then i don't i don't know that we have a basis to go forward at all and that's what it seems that so many of these movements want to create is some sort of overlord you know some sort of body that they control that determines when Others have stepped over the line, but the line is constantly shifting, and the person who is offended doesn't have to take responsibility for being offended because they can often, you know, what what these people want often is to be able to complain anonymously. They don't even want to take responsibility for their own anger and hurt. I mean, it, it, it's it just seems to me it's completely it sounds, unworkable.
0: It sounds like I don't. I hate this. I hate to. To make an exaggeration and point to the 1950s or 1940s, but in I believe in East Germany, one third of people were government yes, informants. Yes,
1: exactly, were informants. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what what.
0: Have uh, you studied much about th- about communism in the 1930s, not, 40s, or not 50s? not to the
1: extent of you know an expert like like Jordan Peterson. I mean, I was always fascinated by I think as I think many people are by those regimes and and how they how they came into being and how people adapted themselves to them. And I do see that that's what we're often doing now, is just adapting ourselves to this ever-increasing panoply of, of rules of conduct and just trying to not be run over by this, this machine that is being created.
0: Can you tell me about how the humanities are corrupt? Can you expound on that?
1: Well, I think the basic thing I would say is that they're corrupt in that they're no longer about the subjects they claim to be about, that they, they've all been corrupted by activism. That yeah.
0: Let's restate that, but say humanities, just in case I want to cut to this. I don't want people to say, what is she saying when she says they are corrupt? The,
1: yeah, the humanities, I think, ha- have stopped being about the particular subject. So art history is not really about art anymore, not, not fundamentally. Art... Is the means to the end of social justice. That's the same thing for for literary studies. Uh, it's the same for for various other classical studies. Even now, I've got a story about classical studies, but I won't not bore you with it. But um, you know, they they all have essentially, I think, surrendered a commitment to the subject itself as valuable. Which and we used to say that you know studying english literature was valuable in itself because there's something about reading great works of literature that gives you access to the human experience in all of its complexity and that in itself is is valuable you learn something about what it means to be human you don't necessarily approach it from one particular angle. You approach it from a variety of angles, but it's valuable in itself to know this—you know—this body of, of work to read and to think about the human experience over time. Now we read literature to understand, you know, the experience of marginalized peoples and to strive for social justice. So it has been—I um, don't want to say hijacked, but it, that's the word that comes to mind—but it, it, it's become. Less important for its own self, it's a means to an end of this larger activist goal of you know, beco- becoming a better person, becoming a, a social justice warrior. So
0: why is this such a big problem? Why isn't it just some esoteric squabblings between pedantic philosophers in university? Why does it not just stay there? Because it doesn't, I mean,
1: because, of course, if you believe that, once you, once you uh, embrace that ideology, you're, you're not going to leave it in university. You're going to take it out wherever you go. And um, because if, you're, you're, if your goal is to radically transform the world, and if you believe the world is a terrible, terrible place where all of these injustices are taking place every day, then of course you're not going to leave it. It's not. It's never going to be just an intellectual endeavor. It has to be an activist endeavor. It has to be something that you carry with you into everyday life. And that's what you know. And and, and these um, social justice warriors, these these radical leftists, have not been content to just attack the discipline of literary studies. They've they've gone after law. You know, they're going after the the you know the core of Western civilization. For example. Well they they they're they're interested in changing how we understand what the law is and how it should function. Um changing you know the whole idea of of what it means to live in a society governed by the rule of law. Feminist From activist, what to what? Well, feminist activists, for example, want to change um they want to essentially weaken the presumption of innocence in cases of sexual assault. It's one of their primary goals so that um women don't have to um or that the 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 system doesn't have to prove a man guilty that he will actually have to prove himself innocent i mean this is a fundamental transformation and this is seen as appropriate because women have for too long according to feminists not been able to get justice um, when they're sexually assaulted. So you know, activists are taking their deeply held beliefs and taking them into you know, all, all corners of, of the society. And so yeah, it's never gonna change. It's never gonna remain a, just a, an intellectual endeavor.
0: Can you tell me how sexism has been redefined? And then if you like, you can also tell me how rape has been redefined and violence. We've touched on it, but to reiterate explicitly.
1: Uh, mm, Let's see. Uh, How has sexism been redefined? I guess sexism has been redefined from, um, you know, explicit, um, you know, clearly identifiable acts of injustice against women uh, to something that is seen as systemic, that is present in all sorts of um, very subtle, you know, often invisible uh, forms of, um, uh, objectification of, of, uh, of demeaning of, of women, uh, the, the creation of all sorts of individual, uh, or sorry, invisible barriers to women. I'm kind of losing it now. It's okay. It's okay. You can start over.
0: <laughs> Think about it. Think about it because this is, I'm, I might want to just take this clip. I know this is a lot of pressure,
1: but I <laughs> um... want to include
0: someone <laughs> explaining what racism used to be. I know you're not talking about racism. that's not your field, but Feminism, what feminism used to be, sexism used to be, violence used to be, rape used to be in the context mm-hmm. of men versus women or women, women's issues, to let the audience know, let me know, what, it, what did it used to be and what has it become?
1: Well, I think the main thing is that it used to be something that, was, that could be very clearly measured, that it was specific and intentional acts of discrimination, bigotry or hatred against women. Um, actions or, or expressions or laws, you know, that were discriminatory. Whereas now I think the idea is that, it, you know, it has become because that kind of overt discrimination is much, much more difficult to put one's finger on. I would say because it doesn't exist. It has now become something. Um, primarily... you mean to say It's
0: easier to put your finger on it, but it's just less. Mm-hmm. It's just happening less and less.
1: Yeah. it's Because it's, it is easier to
0: point out when someone's
1: been it, violent. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But it, it's it, in, it, in society as a whole, it's very difficult to point to, um, you know, legal instances of uh, discriminatory treatment of women. In fact, what you find instead is cases where women are discriminated in favor of rather than against did
0: you he- did you hear about google and someone some woman was suing yes. Google?
1: Mm-hmm. yes yeah, yeah. yeah tell so women, me about that well i haven't read about it yet but yeah women in high tech are finally starting to speak out and to say that they've watched as highly qualified men are passed over for less qualified women and they're fed up with it that, that you know that they're they're, they're they, they they think it's unacceptable. Well, oh, I was
0: talking about something else where I saw that a woman sued Google because she's being paid less than her male counterparts. Oh, I see. And then what mm-hmm. happened was an investigation was conducted and it turns out that the men were being paid less.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I read about that too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are many cases in academia where there have been class action suits where women's pay has been raised across the board because they were in general being paid less. Um, but it's, far from clear that the reason they were being paid less had anything to do with sexism there are all sorts of reasons why you might be paid why one person might be paid more than another even in academia because you've taken on an administrative position because you've done much more because you've won a special award you know there's all sorts of reasons and and so this idea that sexism is to blame and i guess that comes back then to your question about you know what is it about you know what has sexism become it's essentially become anything, any case where um, a a woman can allege discrimination on the basis of any sort of unequal outcome. So I guess to simplify it, one could say that it has gone from being a case where one could point to inequality of opportunity that used to be, where women were barred from certain things or whatever. Now it has become a case of any time one can point to an unequal outcome where the woman is disadvantaged, sexism is always what is alleged to be the cause. Only in cases, of course, where the woman is disadvantaged, you can also say, well, look, there are many, many more men in prison today than there are women. And nobody's gonna say that because of, yeah, it's always been the case. I think it's 93 or 94% of prisoners are male. And if you ask a feminist about that, she'll say that's because men commit more crimes. But why are there more male um, Nobel Prize winners? Not because more men have done these brilliant things. It's because women were discriminated against. So there's always that double standard in operation. You know, so if you, you find a case of, um, a feminist will point to the number of women CEOs of fortune 500 companies that's evidence that women are being held back because women do not operate or do not um, occupy 50% of those positions but if you ask how many men and women are in you know coal mining or uh, construction work or you know whatever it happens to be who work in the logging industry or the fishing industry with these very high fatality and injury the rates firemen. yeah um and you say well what how do you explain that well that's a totally different thing and nobody is interested but in they would say that that's also
0: the patriarchy acting
1: yeah they might but they're not they're not but- working very hard to get more women into those positions i've never seen a group of women advocating that you know the number of women in logging be uh, evened out so that more women can die or be maimed in these in these positions so so I guess that 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 is the uh, that's probably the maybe the truest definition is that we've gone from worrying about equality of opportunity and identifying barriers to now Um, worrying about equality of outcome and whenever um, you know an outcome is seen to discriminate against women sexism is what is alleged even though it's impossible to prove that it's the case and they use a little
0: bit of sleight of hand here because they would say we also actually care about equality of opportunity only but we use evidence of the unequal outcomes as evidence evidence
1: that there isn't equality of opportunity exactly yeah yeah even though you can never put your finger on in what way is a woman being held back of going into from going into mathematics they'll bring forward various types of arguments
0: so do you do you think feminists or the radical left even though feminists are a particular subset of the radical left let's talk about the radical left as a whole do you think they care more about power or the destruction of the west and this is something that i've been thinking about mm-hmm. because they do yeah. talk about the abolishment of ideals from the I, yes, ideals from the Enlightenment.
1: The Enlightenment, yeah.
0: And that's West. That's the West
1: mm-hmm. in a nutshell. Yeah.
0: Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman in, in its current form.
1: Yeah.
0: And they seem to want to do away with that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, they want power. And so I wonder, do they care more about power? So that is, if you, if you put, give them this choice, you can have power, but the West is strengthened somehow. Whatever that means. Mm-hmm. The hierarchies remain. But you have power or we can have the destruction of the west so no hierarchies but you have no power which actually would be the case if you if there were no hierarchies because no one would have power which one do you think they would want
1: well i don't think that they would see that that uh, it has to be a choice their power would be used to destroy the west and and to destroy uh, the. but if they had hierarchy. those two in front of them they had to
0: choose one which one do you think i know you're not a radical no, feminist I don't know. so you're going to have to conjure up a virtual <laughs> feminist in your head which one do you well, think which one has the hatred your read? of
1: the West I think is a very powerful impetus. I do believe that. So I that I I would see that that is perhaps the the primary motivator.
0: So I've come to a similar conclusion. I see power as the means to destroying the West mm-hmm. and not yeah. and not the destruction of the West as means to to attain power.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I would agree. Yeah, I think that um I I'm not sure how it is that um, all of these people, many of whom you know, have very comfortable, affluent, secure, prosperous lives in the West, how they come to so deeply um, disassociate themselves from it, to, to resent it so deeply, to hate it, to, to prefer any other system, even systems that have resulted in the deaths of tens of millions of people to the Western system. Well, there's that but...
0: Peterson's... Slavoj, Slavoj Zizek debate recently. Yeah, I don't know if you've I seen it. Yeah, I didn't see it. But no, at but one I point, heard Peterson, it, said, yeah. Peterson said that there is a bloody, violent revolution. There would be a bloody, violent revolution if so-and-so happened. And as soon as he said that, then the audience were like, yeah. yeah. And then he just paused. He was like, are you... just? He didn't mm-hmm. say anything. He didn't comment on it. But they're just clapping for bloody, violent yeah. revolution.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, It is quite it's astounding, really. It is. It's astounding. Um, and... and um, you know, I think there is an element of a death wish in in that too. You know that there's a kind of admiration for murderous regimes that kill dissidents because they're strong, and I think something happens to people in the West—a a kind of um, you know a, a sickening contempt for the the softness of the West, even though that's not how they themselves would define it. They would say that people are being you know oppressed and people are dying and and. And uh, they're not living a quality life as it is now, but they must know that, you know, relatively speaking, that simply isn't the case. That mm. that all other regimes have done a much poorer job of guaranteeing, you know, the the basic opportunities of their citizens than Western democratic capitalism has done. Um, but there is this, you know, I think, a deep desire to um, to, to see destruction and even maybe to be destroyed themselves. Uh, there's a, um, I'm thinking of Jamie's book. There's a book. Have you read, um, Jamie Glazov's, uh, United in hate? What's the subtitle? Do you remember? I can't remember the subtitle, but the, the main title is United in Hate. And, um, that's what he posits. I haven't read the book now in, in you know a decade at least, but um, but he posits that something happens in the radical leftist that propels him to identify with murderous regimes, actually because they are murderous, even though ostensibly the reason for the identification is because these are you know fairer, juster regimes, but that there is a deep knowledge that they actually aren't and that the uh radical leftist actually falls in love with with violence and and would go so far as to prefer to to be killed by one of these regimes, or even or at least, you know, to have his individuality erased in um, union with the collective. And so it's
0: hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's to best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories.
1: It's something there. It's some sort of deep, Disconnect from his own individuality in a free society and a desire for union with the collective. He was writing also... that about
0: his experience, or he's writing that about other well, people. Well, based
1: saw. on his study of, especially of um, the Soviet Union and of Westerners who covered up the crimes of the Soviet Union. Various leftists who traveled to the Soviet Union and saw what was going on, or at least had a sense of what was going on, but lied about it. When they came back things like that and um uh and you know and he looks at um celebrity leftists and various people who have been in love with you know with North Vietnam with North Korea And there's always people willing to Sean Penn you know was um I think went to North Korea and thought it was a wonderful place or no he went to Iran I think and and uh Um, carried water for that regime. And there are always these people who, who, although you would think that they would feel some kind of basic gratitude to the country that has given them so much, but actually hate it and would like to see it destroyed, even if that resulted in their own destruction. It's deeply irrational.
0: Yeah, this ingratitude is something that I see even with when it comes to literary work. It's not that Shakespeare is great and it sucks that he was also sexist or that there's sexist elements in his plays it's not that it's it's that shakespeare is a white male and he's sexist and we despise him Mm -hmm. and i hate him Mm -hmm. it's not it sucks that it's yeah he is huh we get to hate him now Mm -hmm. so there's an ingratitude there yeah it seems like Mm -hmm. there's some resentment there's an element of that yeah
1: and a deep rejection of one's own intellectual and cultural inheritance
0: there's a celebration of the fact that there are other Mm. people who are racist because then they can point to them as the enemy and the source of their woes
1: yeah there's that you know it's a it's a bizarre combination of um uh superiority because you're one who sees the racism and sexism of your own culture and you rise above it you fight it etc so there's a kind of self-love in that but there's also this deep self-hatred i think in that you 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 know, you become alienated from, from your own people, your own history, your own communities. It's a, it's a bizarre combination.
0: To recapitulate, what do you think is the line that separates the moderate left from the extreme left?
1: I guess I would say the main...
0: <laughs> okay, now I remember what, what you said before was something like when they go too far with expanding the domain of what what constitutes a an expression of hurt or a feeling of hurt and that is too vague because what's too large so if you could if you could trump- somehow make it more clear
1: i think the main thing i would say about where the left definitely goes too far is that one it's the identification of words with violence and therefore an argument made for um, extreme censorship of, of words. And the other thing is, through the identification of words with violence, therefore there is a justification of using violent methods against those with whom one disagrees. And we see that in you know riots that have taken place in various places in, in um, at Berkeley, for example where a professor of situational ethics threw a bike lock at somebody for simply you know, speaking in a way that he found um, repulsive or, or um, that he condemned. So that I think those would be the two things I would say, the identification of, of words with violence and therefore um, the argument being made that, that those words can legitimately be uh, censored that whole swaths of discourse can be called off limits because they supposedly uphold uh, an unjust status quo. Part of uh, what the left often claims is that freedom of speech only should apply to what they identify as liberatory speech, not speech that reaffirms injustice. That goes way back to Mark. And it's not even free.
0: And, yes, and it's not free. It's Placing limits. Mm-hmm. But and of the, course, the, then some people would say some limits exist. Yeah, there already speech, are. But that's yeah. also one of the reasons why hate speech is mm-hmm. so pernicious, and maybe it mm-hmm. shouldn't be a concept that that we instantiate into law. Yeah, this, well, exactly. The I United mean, States doesn't have it. It doesn't.
1: Week. No, it may soon. But yeah, the Canadian Supreme Court has has uh, you know tried to define hate speech, but and you know on why it why a principle supporting freedom of speech doesn't apply to hate speech. But they just end up, you know, you you can't write a logical explanation for why freedom of speech shouldn't apply to hate speech. They end up saying things like, well, hate speech doesn't contribute to freedom of speech. Therefore, it shouldn't be covered by freedom of speech because hate speech supposedly prevents others from being able to respond and therefore it, you know, it it isn't really free It doesn't contribute to freedom it's just crazy Mm -hmm. there's no way you can make the argument so that that i think is is a fundamental where where we start defining speech as violence and then therefore um, justify violence or or the violence of the law or actual physical violence in order to shut down this supposedly violent speech those those would be my my two
0: thank (laughs) you so much i appreciate it (laughs) wow Okay, so now <laughs> thank this is you. just extra. This is pretty much for me. I had some some questions that I was just personally interested in. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. welcome. Why don't you hey. come in? Yeah, I'm still recording, <laughs> so this will just be for you me. You come and sit
1: down. <laughs> I need <laughs> I need a sip of, of water. I should have got something. Okay, I'll be maybe water maybe get Kurt his, ginger his uh, yeah ginger yeah. ale would be great. Just hot
2: water. Take, take it back.
1: Thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: Here's who you yeah, okay, so I'm so.
1: I don't think I was very good. <laughs> oh, are you worried about how you performed? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I worry, was I'm all sure. all muddled no, and. No, I'm just terrible no. in those okay, so situations.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Some of what I wanted to ask you about was how you're actually pretty quick on your feet, even though you said that you're an introvert, which I am an what? introvert too, but I don't think you, you are think, really. I
1: don't think you think I am. Uh, no, you don't, don't seem like it at all. <laughs> you seem but, very gregarious yeah, to me. No, no. <laughs> And extroverted. Well, you
0: well, know. Well. I've become that way. But it's not as if. I guess.
1: The they say people become introvert. more introverted over time. Mm-hmm.
0: The definition of an introvert is that when you're out in the party, you'd rather go back home and recharge. There's that recharge Exactly, yeah. That's yeah I like definition of I find it's that different. like I get
1: exhausted yeah, really quickly. quickly. Yeah. I can spend
0: months at home and never speak to someone else. We're
1: like that too, both of us, yeah. yeah I
0: prefer that. Mm
1: hmm. Okay, so <laughs> what
0: I wanted to know is, on that Steve Pacon panel, was that your only Steve Pacon panel? Yeah, okay. yeah. So the lady beside you was berating me. Yeah. And for <laughs> me, if I'm being attacked, now I don't know as much about the subject matter as you, but I would get flummoxed, and I wouldn't know. If That's I would what put the I words got. That's what I respond but you did a fantastic job wow and that that's author, very author, nice author, i didn't author, I did job, yeah job justin
1: too. he's he's very articulate know, know, but like he just, he's very he good so composed. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. no well that wasn't my i mean my that was i think my worst that was one of my first sort of public things really and i was so embarrassed afterwards and did you see karen strong's comments about you uh i don't know i might have
0: okay well she said Fiamingo, I love her. <laughs> said, I don't know how she managed to stay so composed when I was talking to Naomi Wolf, who was less of an inca- inte- intellectual of compared to the Spanish lady in orange that was sitting next to me. Yeah. I got hot-headed up. Re- I'm just paraphrasing what she said.
1: Well, yeah, Karen like, drawn would never be flummoxed. She's so good. But she's no, I like did her. feel. I mean, there's there's pictures. There's some like film footage in that panel discussion, where I, I, I'm just sitting there, I'm kind of, I'm, no, I'm no, staring no. ahead. I, I just felt so, yeah, I, I can't even describe Was it. it.
0: Confrontation?
1: It's not that. It's not that I don't like confrontation. It's uh, It's just, I'm very dissatisfied with my own ability to respond. And I get, it's just like you said, I get flustered, flummoxed. I can't think of any words. Like literally, I feel like my, my vocabulary, which you know, when I'm just sitting on the couch, I feel like I have a, a yeah, you know, to every
0: single word, in yeah, word. pretty
1: much. Uh, I might have to think for a while, we, we always forget words, but um, you know, pretty much, I, I can think, th- uh, think of words, but yeah, in the moment, mm-hmm. I it's mm-hmm. like I, my vocabulary reduces to about one tenth of its you actual know, sweetie, size. In a way,
2: they didn't present you properly, I was there. And they made her up as if she was some kind of Japanese mannequin. <laughs> she looked like a Japanese mannequin. And I really... Oh, they put on, yeah, put on a whole bunch I, of I makeup. I really lost yeah. it. I mean, she looked like she, you know she'd just stepped out for Halloween. And I said, you can't do this because she's beautiful, and just leave her, <laughs> let her be. And then I was really upset with the way Pe- Steve Paikin, I always call him the Paikinese, I can't help it, but you know, the way in which he negotiated that confrontation, that discussion. Mm. And I was really upset because he didn't seem to give Janice the opportunity to respond properly, and there were two against her. And Justin, who was in the middle, was pro and con. You know, it was, I don't think it was a fair setup. So afterwards, I went in, you know, into the back room, the green room, or whatever it happens to be, and I verbally attacked. Oh yeah!
1: Well
2: oh, yeah! <laughs> he
0: yeah! He just took it with a neutral face. No,
2: no, his um, his Slavic, and <laughs> oh yeah, his Slavic,
1: his, his
2: Slavic assistant almost threatened to beat me up and I turned <laughs> and I let him have it, and then and then I had this long email conversation exchange with. Uh, taken For about a month afterwards, I, I just, I'm
0: surprised he even responded because to him it's like, oh, oh he was trying to just justify
2: it. himself after he said, "I actually he wrote me he said I actually calibrated the amount of time I gave to everybody, and in fact, I didn't really legislate against her. She had enough time compared wow. to the others. Even
1: if I'd had more and, time, and, it, and I wouldn't I, have and been I any said good. No. I, I was said really no,
2: because there were two others, and Justin Trottier, you know, he was. Presumably Cafe on her side, but on the other hand he was attacking Anne Coulter. I would maybe agree with it now, because I think she's gone off the deep end. But at that time she was an ally. And um, I just thought the whole way in which the proportions were arranged was completely wow. no no, it was completely you know, non democratic, let us say, you know. Yeah, I so mean, I, even if himself, I'd had
1: more know? time I wouldn't have I wouldn't. I I could. I didn't equip myself well, and I wouldn't have been able to. And I still don't really think I would. Have, I would be able to. It's just one of my weaknesses. In, in the moment when I really want to be able to marshal an argument, my mind just goes blank. Mm-hmm. I can hardly. You know, I've been think. Like... Yeah, I've been thinking about these issues for five years now, I've read all sorts. You know. I've, and in the moment I can I can hardly remember a name, I can't remember examples. I, I think for
0: me the reason why is that I don't have an angry mind. I very rarely get angry, but I get anxious. Yeah. And so Peter says that the type that can get angry. And I'm right. for very few moments in my life that I have been angry, I can think so so quick. Mm-hmm. It's, it's my ability to access any word in any order. Mm-hmm. And even just I can even I can even construct false arguments just to disprove the other person <laughs> because they used to do stand-up comedy and so that's oh really? that's what you do as a comedian. oh my goodness you proving what's false and then that, that gets a laugh like seinfeld is that i'm going to tell you why this is ridiculous and then he proves it and usually <laughs> there's some element of false well there's some element of truth too but it's ridiculous so it's a, a pro i just proved something to be true that you know is not true and then you laugh. there's something incongruous. right incongruity so that's what stand-ups do <laughs> But I can't do that when, I, I've never really been attacked though, although I do have someone in my family who's a part of the radical right left, and yeah, I can't, well, she's also a part of my family, so I can't just berate her. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. right? <laughs> I can't. We have two but sisters I'm, I'm, and so on, we uh, don't talk to each other anymore. Uh, no, but, but I, I also found that whenever I talk to her, if I talk to her instead of in a, in a, in a, in a manner, that's conducive of conflict instead if it's a dialectic like we're just trying to get to some shared truth then the conversation goes so much smoother for both people i'm more articulate she is as well i understand so it's just better mm-hmm. if i go in thinking okay yeah there's something that I, don't, I hold a partial truth you hold a partial truth what is it it's just both <laughs> you get know to some shared of, negotiation so we yeah part of the mm-hmm. problem like you
2: were just articulating is that why sometimes one doesn't rise to the challenge of an interview, some, you know, in the full way that one would like to? Is because there's too much information. There's just too much evidence to deal with at one time. It's like I say, it's like juggling medicine balls. You know, you don't know what you're going to go. For example, this argument that you brought up, or this question you brought up about, uh, and yet you were discussing about this, you know, hate speech, oppression, uh, unpleasant things said about other people. Uh, that kind of, does it really affect one in, in such a way that one is no longer able to respond properly and as you said reduces the accidental d- dimension of your life and, mm-hmm. and so on. I mean, a perfect example of why that is false is Judaism. Um, I grew up in a little French Canadian town, Sénégat des de caulis up there in, in Quebec. And I was beaten up constantly for being a mozi juif a bad Jew, I, have, I still have certain scars and that, pebble there, you know, slingshot, all kinds of stuff. My uh, stepsister uh, couldn't, you know, to get into McGill, she had, it was a numerous causes, she had to have 80%. Other people would get in at 60%, mm-hmm. 55%, yeah. but she had to have 80%. In my case, it was just about that time, too, when I went to... So, we studied hard, and we led our classes, and we were admitted afterwards, that, that was dropped. You look, for me, the chief example, it was so beautiful when you think of it, is Baron Bing High School in Montreal on St. Urban Street. That was the very poor Jewish district. How did they make a living at that time, all these immigrants? Oh, they sold junk, they had little grocery stores in the front room of their, of their little hovels and so on. Who came out of that? Our greatest poet, Irving Layton, our greatest novelist, Mordecai Richler, one of our great, actually, though he was NDP politicians, David Lewis, they were all Jews, grew up in absolute crushing penury, but had the Torah, the book behind them, the Bible behind them. They read, they studied, you know, they did all kinds of ridiculous things too, and maybe maybe things that weren't so, so acceptable. But these people, look what they became. And then when you get point zero eight percent of the world population winning eight percent of the Nobel prizes, and these are the people who've been oppressed since Mesopotamian times, you know, and there are lots of stupid Our Jews. Arguably,
0: the most oppressed group in the
2: mm-hmm. world. It's the only. It's the, the only, only religion yeah. that has never ceased to exist. Mm-hmm, that's true. You know, so mm-hmm. what happens there? People who have been attacked, who have been brutalized, who have been condemned, who have been reduced to an entity, who've had to travel mm-hmm. from who've had their to actual humanity
1: questions. Co- not and their humanity questions yeah, and, and killed, of lives, course. Yeah.
2: That's annihilated. Mm-hmm. These people read, studied, whether it was Torah in the synagogue, or whether it was just the books at home, or whether it was the sage grandfather or whatever it happened to be. And they made themselves through all that horror and terror and inflammatory rhetoric and devastation, they made themselves into the leading intellectuals of our time. Also, the great fools of our time, too, when you look that's at someone, me, you know. But there it is. So, the attack on your sense of identity does not necessarily by any means mean that you're going to be deprivileged. It may mean, and it has for did for Irving, it did for Leonard Cohen. Leonard was rich, but he had his problems too. did for David Lewis, it did for Mordecai Richler, it did for all these great writers of our time, and great scientists as well. What it did for them is they rose above. All that condemnation and denunciation and all that that oppression and prejudice that they had to face. I mean, I grew up in Senegath. I couldn't swim in certain beaches, no Jews allowed. This is what I grew up with. I was ambushed every second day on a long walk to my high school and my public school by the French kids around me. And, you know, I even thought, Moudzi juif damn Jew. I spoke French almost before I spoke English, but I thought it was one word. They would call me a Moudzi juif a damn Jew. <laughs> it was only later on I realized it's two words, Moudzi, damn, Jouif, Jew. <laughs> I thought it was one word, you know, because I got it all the time. Well, I don't know, maybe I didn't rise above those challenges, but I published <laughs> 35 books. I represented Canada in the Department of External Affairs in Europe, stayed with ambassadors, lectured at universities. I have five degrees, which makes me unemployable at this point. All Everything from a BA to a doctorate, um, and three MAs, and so on. What were so the degrees the, My BA was in Philosophy and English, uh, my QMA was in Drama, and then I, have, uh, then I had a creative writing, but that was just a joke, just for salary purposes. I got, <laughs> Concordia. I got a, a degree in education at the University of Sherbrooke. That was also a joke, but the degree is there. And I got my doctorate in North American Studies at Lajos University in Debrecen, Hungary, where I've often lectured.
0: How fast do you both read it?
2: I read one book a year. <laughs> uh, I mean, slow, slow, slow. Let's say you're
0: to read this. How long would this one page take you? It depends. I don't, you? Fast,
1: I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure. fast, I think. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. Ever since yeah. you were a kid? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And
0: what about it. you, Very slow. Very slow. So you're
1: slow. faster at writing than you are at reading?
2: That's impossible. No, no I'm slow both. I'm, I'm, I'm very slow at <laughs> <slow laughs> both. You <know>, because everything <laughs> I write, for example, the thing just went up now. PJ, PJ Media town halls up today or yesterday called Life in the Biodome, which starts off, you know, when we went back, we were in Vancouver a month or two ago, and Janice took me to the Biodome, and I thought, here's a metaphor for Western Civ. But it was sitting there for the longest time because, you know, I couldn't come across some way of dealing with it and eventually I started to do it and sometimes it takes a day or two but it's because I've been thinking about it off and on for two mo- for two months and even when I don't think of it and Janice knows this, it comes up in my dreams I'm totally unconscious of it and the words come up, phrases come up so I know there is something called the mind behind the mind I've often said this, you have your mind so called whatever it is that observes and makes decisions and judgments and so on but behind that mind there is another mind <coughs> which is you and not you. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's that mind that never, never ceases, never sleeps. It creates your dreams. It's, but for, she said, we forget a word sometimes.
1: What is that? Oh, point? yeah. Or Do you minute. ever have that? Two days. Or you or forget something. I, I wake and
2: up at three and say, hmm. it's Lillian Hellman. <laughs> yeah. Two, three days later. I don't know. I haven't been thinking about it. I've been know other things. Mm-hmm. Just, so we have that mind that is a constantly, it's a perpetual motion machine, constantly revolving and thinking, behind the mind that is doing all the other things, like right now, you know. And that's the mind, I don't know if everybody has that, I presume, it must be a natural human phenomenon. But I know I have it, and I'm infinitely grateful for it, because without that, what would I do? You know, it's what we call inspiration, it's what we call magic, it's what we call being in the zone, we have all these terms for it, you know. She has it too. She's an amazing writer. I mean, I can't believe she'll sit down with... Very her. So slow, no, though. Very no, because no, we go over
1: things a ma- million times. Can I run the
0: writing I, process?
1: Do yeah, I, have don't, have I don't, don't even know what it is. So that you have your
0: source on the screen? No, I I usually on.
1: print... My preference is actually to print things out, whatever it is that I'm reading and responding to. And... and um, I don't even know what my process is. You know, I just start writing, and then I, but then I go over it and over it and over it and over it. How it do and you construct it. your
0: sentences? It does it come out of you. In the same way that it is read? No, no, we hire, we hire we a construction firm. <laughs> you
1: know, it, it's called Sentencing I, Construction firm. <laughs> they have an office in John and they have one in, in mm. Kingston.
2: We call them up, we pay them an hourly rate, and they come and
1: construct the sentence. <laughs> I don't know how I do it, but I, I, I revise and revise and revise. I mean, I really, Steve and I, you know, with the videos, we often talked about, uh, you know, getting, um, doing a certain number of videos that are on a contemporary subject so if some issue breaks try to yeah. do it right away you know while everybody's still I just can't do it I've done it I've tried uh, like I really have a great admiration for journalists who who do that because I find I can't do it I'm very No
0: you
2: I'm
1: can't interested I just I can't really often I don't even know exactly what my argument is you know I've got an idea I've got points I want to make but I don't know like when when I'm really happy with a piece of writing it's when I feel that every part fits together and it all it all makes one not original I mean nothing's really original but what I feel is my original contribution and 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 I and you know and the ideal, which always, doesn't always happen even sometimes when I've worked on something for weeks, but the ideal is that it, it all like it's intricately it, it seems really natural the way it flows, but that it all works together and the various parts, you know one part leads into another and then that counterpoints mm-hmm. off this and then it all comes together with my final point. but that's so hard. You see, and, we go
2: back and forth. yeah all we
1: All the different versions. And it's
2: not all of it. They're just one word of hmm. All of them is it? I
1: don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But everything, that's why we can't be journalists, because every, we have made every word. And of course, I mean, the rhetoric of a sentence is important too. It has to flow in a certain kinds of ways. Like you try to
1: make it seem simple and straightforward, really, because. Often the way I first write is quite turgid and uh, long sentences and too many words, you know, long phrases, all very complicated and then part of the revision process has to do with paring it down, taking out all the unnecessary words and, and having it so that it seems very natural and very straightforward. But so much work I really admire, like some journalists can just, you know, they write one draft. and. And that's it. And it it reads really well and it makes their point and is well presented, but I I can't do that. Often my stuff is really turgid and overly complex and not clear. And maybe I'm going in a number of different directions and I haven't really decided how all those different directions work together. And so, yeah, I'm constantly reworking. And it's really, it's fascinating. I mean, it is a fascinating process because sometimes I'll work all day on it and it's just it's no good. It's going, doesn't, it doesn't know what it wants to do. I've got one point here. It doesn't really connect with this other point, and, you And know, I don't even know what the relationship is. And then I'll go to bed. And like David was saying, the mind behind the mind or whatever, I'll wake up in the morning. I know exactly what it is. I've uh, figured it out. And, and then and maybe it's just one sentence at the very beginning that then everything else sort of somehow fits together. Or I, or I see how that first point connects with the second point. And so, yeah, but it's, just takes forever. Yeah. yeah, so I Which is amazing
2: because I, uh, when you sit down and you just start writing, I can't do that. I have to go That's not true. Zero, no, I need silence and I have to no. I have to take out a contract on Steve at the other side with his blower and go
1: crazy. I can be that's watching
2: a muffin game and she's sitting there writing. Said, she's incredible. Mm-mm. She's amazing. An amazing He writer. does
1: that too. No. An, an amazing lawyer, you know? <laughs> but um and he's an amazing cat. He's an amazing curious. <laughs> oh, of course, Danny. You he <laughs> are <here>. <laughs> <laughs> He's hadn't had, had his treats for some time. Okay. Hmm. Some treats <laughs> for
2: this standard. This time, they go.
1: But yeah, if I could, I would do way more. Like I wish I could write way faster. Because so there's so many interesting things to write about but i have to let so many things go by because i i just can't get to them all all, do you
0: mean other topics or topics within no
1: even within feminism i mean yeah there are i i would like to write about other subjects too but i i'm kind of stuck in feminism right now david and i have talked about this before that i should get out you know because there's other things (laughs) really important in the world too but because it's the one that i have been working in for years now and i how much of your writing
0: is research versus writing do you ever get stuck in this research rabbit hole? You yeah, do research mm-hmm. the research and sometimes. You that it's a form of procrastination, or is it because yeah, you really realize that you need to research
1: <laughs> and you don't know it <laughs> Yeah, there's that. I mean, there's so many things to know, and uh, yeah, that can take forever. Um, but that isn't, it's not so much that. I don't, you know, I do research, but I don't extensively research. A lot of my stuff is fairly straightforward. I'm, I'm either dealing with a specific incident, that I want to say something about, or sometimes I'm responding to, you know, a number of articles that are making some kind of claim about women in society or whatever that I want to counter, and uh, and so the thing that really takes the time is just figuring out how to how to present it i just i find that really hard and often people will send me you know there's a lot of articles written by feminists attacking men you know laying out the usual statistics about why you know more needs to be done for women and all that and i often think i would like to i wish i could just bang out in an hour you know a quick response saying you know why this is wrong and i just can't do it like in the moment often i'll i just get so angry reading that's part of it too. Or maybe it's more anxious, but it's both. Like I get angry and anxious. And I think, oh, how, like, this is just nonsense. So much of the stuff that's written is just, you know, it's it's fantasy or, or, you know, it's ridiculous. But to to figure out how exactly to respond to it, I'm often kind of at a loss. I have to sit with it. There's Megan. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, anyway, so, yeah, so, so, like, there was, you know, there was a famous example, um, this woman, she's a university professor, as so many of them are, her name was uh, Susanna Walters, and she wrote an article about a... Uh, um, hey, stop, I'm sorry. About a year ago, more than a year ago, called "Why Can't We Hate Men?" Yeah. and it was actually not an ironic, not mm-hmm. joking, not anything. It was just a straightforward statement of why she hates men and why she thinks that's legitimate. Yeah. Anytime you come
0: across these, so there's Peggy McIntosh's white right, or for, or
1: for yeah. Like, okay. Oh, do you want me to send you a yeah, few? You yeah. Send them because mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to at one point in the documentary just list off. I guess snippets after snippets of examples.
1: Yeah. Okay. Sure. I'll I'll send you some things. Hey. Hi, Megan. Come on in.
0: We're just filming something for me, and maybe it'll go on behind the scenes if nice. she approves. You'll get it before it goes out. Nice. And we're done. This one died, which is fine. It died about one minute before we needed to end, so oh, okay. it was fine. That's not bad. It's okay. Yep, yeah.
2: okay.
0: Yeah. And you you're saying. Oh, you know what I was thinking about is. That lady who was sitting next to you, the lady in the law, oh, yes she was mm-hmm. saying that one, it wasn't a violation of free speech what those people did, right? Which, mm-hmm. which is technically true in terms of law. It wasn't a, it wasn't a violation of free speech to shut someone else's free speech down, but it definitely was a violation of the university's principles yeah sure okay, so there's that. yeah
1: I mean that's just what do you say to that see I was dumbfounded
0: yeah mm-hmm. but then you can also make the counter thing. well what about the people of me too are we to say that they are doing this because yeah. they can benefit by they're
1: benefiting the same time on mm-hmm. and yeah CTV? exactly I mean what a ridiculous so thing to, to say yeah like, so the same logic there as well. mm-hmm. so if, if my leg is cut off I will probably receive a lot of attention yeah, too. I might her. be interviewed by, by CBC or, or whatever. Or have a movie
0: made for one yeah. of hours with James
1: Franco. Exactly. Yeah. Arm. The guy cut off his arm. So are we going to say that that was really a good thing then, when, that when it happened, wore, it benefited? Wore, yeah. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what do you say to that? I mean, I didn't even know what to say. In a way, that it's exactly the same argument that was used for Lindsay Shepard, you know, who was treated so terribly. And then a bunch of people said, oh, but she benefited benefited she received far more attention than she would have otherwise and everybody knows who she is yeah but like i don't know that what even and, yeah and, and
0: also that's just that also could be an indication of how pathological the system is that when mm-hmm. you draw attention to it people realize okay we need to pay more attention to it mm-hmm. so not necessarily mm-hmm. that it's a net i mean it is a net positive it ended up i so i do believe that when you speak your mind and you tell what you think to be true in a courageous manner like yourself or Lindsey Shepard or Jordan Peterson or Brett Weinstein, Weinstein, I don't know. Yeah, I
1: is. think it's, it's Steen, but I'm not sure.
0: It. That 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 I think in next, it will be better for you. So that's true, but that doesn't mean that you're doing it for the thing.
1: Mm hmm. Or that Does somehow,
0: that you're, you're mixing up correlation.
1: Yeah, is, I mean, it's really bizarre Or or that somehow therefore the the injustice or the wrong is in any way lessened because something good came out of it because you drew attention to it and people noticed you when you spoke about it. It's just bizarre. Yeah, it was all... The suggestion was that one would plan for these things to happen because they would help help you in some way. I'm going but... to be
0: interviewing Deborah so You know Deborah Soh? Oh, I'm yes. Gonna... Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't know if I'm going to be interviewing her. I inter... I messaged her a long time ago about this documentary before I started interviewing anybody. And she said, yes, let's do it. And then I just never contacted her again because I I wasn't sure who she was. I just had a list of people I should contact I contacted <laughs> them and they saw who would get back to me. And then I thought that she was somebody who wasn't credible. I didn't know what she... I didn't even check into her credentials. I was like, okay, let me interview these other people first. But now that I researched her, oh, she has a yeah. neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. mm so Yeah. She mm-hmm. actually studied the sexual dimorphism mm-hmm. between the, the differences between men and women neurologically, which mm-hmm. is extremely interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. She's she's a really interesting person. Mm-hmm. I hope you will well, interview her. Oh, so she's easy. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she's a very spunky person too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's very
0: sex positive, apparently. That's what she says. Ah. mm
1: mm-hmm. like, <laughs> <laughs> I think
0: sex should be talked about more, and that goes opposite <laughs> to the Jordan Peterson point of view, which is which has also turned out to be my point of view, which is that sex is extremely serious, and you shouldn't treat it as if there's such a thing as casual sex because there you can't disentangle emotions. Well, this whole Me Too mm-hmm. movement is about why casual sex doesn't even exist. Right. So while mm-hmm. the left is clamoring for yeah more sex and yeah. They're also at the same time realizing the ramifications of that and then advocating for sexual totalitarianism. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. All based on what the woman wants and and whether it's a positive experience for the woman. So if it's something she wants and she enjoys, then it's good for it it to have a free for all. But if she then changes her mind afterwards and said it was damaging in some way, then all of a sudden it's sexual misconduct. It's totally crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah.